Michael. Hava, hi. Hi. Hi, how are you? Michael Sokolovsky. Uh, I apologize for running late to our recording session. You are not forgiven. Apology not accepted. I, it's going in your file. I made a mistake and then I was stuck in traffic. It was bad. And I had a car full of bio bricks. Are you familiar with bio bricks? I'm Hava? not. It sounds very hippy-dippy, which I love about it. Uh, it's not hippy-dippy. It's like compressed hardwood dust that you burn in your wood stove oh that sounds cool as hell yeah i was behind a guy in line like at this you know country store and he wasn't wearing a mask and he was complaining really aggressively to the person behind the counter about how bad cops are that sounds like a very bizarre experience it was a super bizarre experience the sort you get in western massachusetts i'm otherwise fine i'm sitting in my new little office space my little pine board office space Aww. and i'm adjusting i'm just it's a continual it's an iterative adjusting process to the cottage lifestyle mm-hmm. so how are you Hava? um as i stated earlier in a word oi things are weird in my house i am weird things are weird i was in such a weird mood i like drank a bunch of coffee in order to become like peppy enough to record this episode and as soon as this recording is over i'll like sink back into the mud into my goblin form (laughs) my boyfriend came home from work the other day feeling a little off a little headache a little something something and at his work they make him test if they call out for anything for any sickness Mm -hmm. so he took at home covid test and it was negative And then the next day, he took an at-home COVID test, and it was maybe positive with a very faint line. And then today, he took a test, a rapid antigen test at a site, at like a government site or whatever, and it was negative. Mm -hmm. So if two negatives and a maybe positive, his work only wants to accept the negative one from the site. So it's just a very miasma of confusion um, pervading my very bones which are sore from sleeping on the couch. Our cat is incredibly upset that his litter box has been moved to facilitate isolation. You know, before this, everything was going pretty good. <laughs> but now every everything is subsumed by this. Well, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry that life is being subsumed by COVID-related drama. That doesn't sound fun. It's not ideal. It's not what I would have chosen for this day. But uh, we do have a special improvement to the day, <laughs> hopefully coming coming forth in this episode, right? Yes, a special improvement to our day and yours. It's only our second episode ever with two guests at once. Who who, who did we have? When we did the Shabbatai series, we had Binya and Daphon at the same time to talk oh, about right. trans-Sephardic poetry. Right, 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 right. Yes, but today, listeners, please welcome to the show Jordan Mann and Joanna Ware. Joanna Ware is Jewish Liberation Fund's founder and executive director, an organizer, facilitator, and educator who has spent over a decade working with organizations to bring forth a more just, whole, and liberatory world. Joanna has worked as a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant adaptive leadership teacher and practitioner, community organizer, and popular educator at the intersections of identity, power, leadership, and social justice. For many years, she worked for LGBTQ equality in the Jewish community as a core member of Keshet's program team. Originally from San Diego, she now lives in Boston, where she and her spouse Diana are outnumbered by cats. Oh, that's cool. Jordan Mann is Jewish Liberation Fund's community fundraising and program officer. 
He is a passionate community builder who brings genuine drive and excitement to everything he touches. He comes to the Jewish Liberation Front from his alma mater's Brown University's Hillel, where he helps students build communities across a board across a broad range of interests and identities. When he's not working towards a more equitable philanthropic world, he's also a professional track and field athlete who has competed twice for Team USA and fallen dramatically on live television during the U.S. Olympic trials. Jordan and Joanna, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? Hi. Um, How are we? Well, we each have our own answer to that, I think. (laughs) I hope so. In this moment, I'm realizing that I need to update my bio because one of my cats died. Oh. Yeah, but otherwise I'm doing okay. (laughs) Okay. It's a weird, wild world. I'm also in a little bit of a COVID, like, do I? Is it just like, I don't know. Had a headache for like three days. It might have been due to something entirely unrelated, but I went and took a COVID test anyway because that's what you do. So now I'm just in that waiting zone. I took a PCR, so I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's going to be who knows how long. Could be six hours, could be 40 hours. Well, I'm sad you are with me in the uh, nebulous COVID miasma, but I'm happy to have some company there. If I've got to be here, I'm glad to be here with you. (laughs) It's a pretty fun COVID waiting room. Jordan, how are you? Do you mind if I eat a sandwich? (laughs) I would love if you, uh, I would love if you eat a sandwich. I'm a huge fan of food. I guess it's part of my how I am. This morning I went to a a PT appointment with my uh, roommate. We were actually in Western Mass. And it's funny that you bring up how, you know, this guy's like complaining at the, uh, I don't know, is Hopkinton Western Mass? I don't know. It's like Central. Is Hopkinton Western Mass? I don't know. It's Western if you live in Rhode Island and are from the Midwest. So basically anything to the West of like Boston is Western Mass to me. Uh, Nonetheless, we were there and we went to a market basket and we came out of it saying, definitely if either of us gets COVID in like the next week, it's gonna be from being at this like way too crowded market basket in Western Mass where there's like three people wearing masks, you know? Who knows how much the KN95 can protect us from from that kind of incredible danger. Yeah, Market Basket's one of those interesting places where it's the most likely place where you're going to get COVID. But also, if the shit really hits the fan (laughs) and like the universe collapses, it's the first place you want to run to. (laughs) (laughs) And and Hopkinton is not Western Met. That is, I I would say that's within the Boston. uh, uh, That's within the Boston belt. But that's okay. It is west of Boston. You know, well, I'm from a place where you think anywhere, where we think anywhere that's like above uh, Virginia is New England. And so really just the fact that I'm able to sort out even those parts of the state, I think, after 10 years here is really an accomplishment. And I think we should all be proud of and celebrate that. We're proud of it. I really would say it's like Boston's muffin top because it straddles 495, which I think defines the Boston metro area belt. Mm-hmm. And it really straddles it. So it's like when you've got a nice muffin top that sort of is on both sides of your belt, like the best kind of muffin top. Right, right, right. I don't know where I am in the muffin analogy. We're really <laughs> far out. I don't even This know. is all like completely whack to me because I am from Texas, which is like includes everything from there to like the rest of New England. That could all fit inside Texas like three times. So this is all, to me, this is all like one county where I'm used to talking yeah. about things. So all this seems like very fake to me. It's like we're arguing about the placement of poppy seed on a bagel and you're like, I am a bagel. You're like a cinnamon yeah. roll, like a big Panera Bread Company cinnamon roll. Wow. Thank you so much for seeing that yeah. about me. 
Absolutely. So you both are here from the illustrious JLF, the Jewish Liberation Fund. Does one of you want to tell the listeners and us a little bit about what the JLF is and why it exists? Yeah, sure. I can start. Jordan, you can correct me if I, you know, miss anything. I mean, you're the founder, so it seems like it would be hard for me to correct you on why the Jewish Liberation <laughs> Fund. Oh, crud. I, I forgot that I founded it for this reason that you're telling me now. <laughs> well, to clarify for posterity, I am not the sole founder. I'm the founding executive director, but this has always been a deeply collaborative project. Started in a living room in Brooklyn in almost almost exactly at this point, five years ago, end of January 2017, which we might recall for some of us was a very dark time. It's been dark times for so long that I'm like, what was happening <laughs> hard to remember. then that was a dark time? Because to me, everything before 2019 was just like puppy dogs and roses. I, how could it be a dark time if it was in the before times? Right. Everything in the before times were good. <laughs> I know. we. It's, it's hard to remember now, but... We had no idea what was coming, except that it had just been 45's first inauguration. Mm. So so Jewish Liberation Fund was founded or emerged, let's say, not actually in response to that particular political moment, but more broadly emerged from a group of people who were basically asking a fundamental question, which was how can Jewish philanthropy better serve the Jewish left? Like, There are lots of ways in which we're falling short. Everything from, you know, rampant racism and sexism in our society and in, you know, replicated in our organizations and in our philanthropic entities to, you know, the real consolidation of power amongst the ultra wealthy and the ways in which that limits our organizations and by extension, our movement's ability to be responsive and really meet the times. And so that felt urgent in a different way in that moment, but actually was not a new problem. What were some of the like specific issues that you think were being under addressed? Or were there particular personal political projects that people in this group were working on that were failing and they realized that the problem was there wasn't a good connection between philanthropic organizations and these movements? Like what were some of those things that happened early on? Yeah. It's a good question. You know, I would say it was less about anybody's personal project because actually the like personal projects of the people who were in that room have largely thrived and grown since then. But I'll speak for myself, right? I I can share a little bit about what for me was really coming up as I had spent years working as an organizer and a Jewish professional, seeing my comrades and colleagues doing powerful organizing, and nobody was talking about money. Particularly, I saw this playing out around Israel-Palestine organizing, where I would see people launching these campaigns, sometimes targeting Jewish institutions, sometimes targeting politicians, sometimes targeting secular institutions. And I just didn't understand how we expected any of these entities to move if we weren't also organizing money. Like, it's just such a fundamental lever of power. Mm -hmm. And we weren't touching it. That plays out across the progressive movement, not just in the Jewish world, but more broadly. So like, Mm -hmm. that's one example, but there are many others. Dramatic, for example, underinvestment in work led by Jews of color. I'm excited to have you all on the show today, because I think for me, when I heard of JLF for the first time, it's like, that's when I realized that that funding gap existed. And also, it made me think about how 
opaque the entire world of Jewish philanthropy is to me. And Mm -hmm. just like as any Jew participating in Judaism, what's happening philanthropically inevitably shapes your life. And yet I know so little about what is happening in that world. You know, it's like a a whole universe of, of people behind closed doors making decisions that affect me and projects I care about that I just never hear about or know about. Wait, so what you're saying is you don't feel like the ultra wealthy have a high level of transparency in the way they make decisions that affect all of our lives? I know, it's very shocking. (laughs) I wish everyone could see me squinting at the camera uh, facetiously here. (laughs) Reminds me of this time, there was this this student who was at Hillel, um, who was, she was like one of the, she was an Asian Jew, uh, Jew of color, you know, and, and, and was one of like the student leaders who was like very frustrated by things. And she was like the student leadership retreat and was like, yeah, I feel like we always talk about all this like equity stuff. We get into like talking about like orthodox equity so quickly and making everything equal for people. And I, I just remember being like, so what you're saying is in this room full of like all white people, you didn't feel like... <laughs> Everything like there was like a really deep level of like analysis of issues relating to Jews of color. And she was like, yeah. And I was like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, Right. (laughs) But more directly related. I think that one thing that's so crazy about it, it's honestly something that I wouldn't even say I was super aware of. Like, yeah, I worked at uh, Hillel for, for four years before I came to JLF. And so like, there were definitely times where you would see this come into play, you know, like uh, my friend leading a birthright trip is like, hey, let's visit Palestine. No. Uh, okay, let's like talk to someone who like speaks critically about the issues. No. Okay, let's like meet a Palestinian and like see that they're leaving, living, breathing people. No. Uh, and all this kind of like coming down from philanthropy. But I think there's a way that we're not even able, I think, to imagine a Jewish world that looks different, like an an institutional Jewish world that looks different from the one we actually have right now, right? Where what you see with a lot of young Jews, you see people like marching in the streets, you know, uh, JFRED, Jews United, Jews for Racial and Economic Justice is, you know, one of our grantees. They're doing a bunch of awesome work in New York, like marching on strikes and, you know, stuff like that uh, (laughs) to to really trivialize that uh, (laughs) to get through it quickly. But the, you know, there's a lot, there's so many organizations, you know, JCA in Minnesota, JCUA in, in Chicago, like one of our other grantees is like organizing around land reparations, using Ohlone land in the West Coast. And there's so much energy in young Jewish people around doing these things, but their ability to do those things is limited by the fact that, you know, guys who are, I mean, usually guys candidly, who are like sitting here with like a billion dollars. Ultra wealthy, ultra wealthy. Most most uh, Jewish philanthropists are not billionaires, but <laughs> you know, ultra wealthy guys who are sitting here saying the best way to like help people engaged in Judaism is like Israel, 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 Israel. And really, there's actually all this energy around things, but we can't even imagine a world that these guys don't have their tendrils reaching all the way through, telling you what you can and can't talk about when really the Jewish people uh, want something different. So you're saying that it's all about the Benjamins. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps more about the Benjamins than we'd like to admit. (laughs) Right, right. You heard it here first, folks. JLF, you want to solve the money problem for funding these progressive causes, for actually making it so they can actually do things. Is the approach to like be the person who funds these groups and to raise money 
from philanthropists or is there an approach that's trying to you know petition these philanthropists to be better like where do you slot yourself into solving that money problem i would say it's a little both and although petition is not the word i would use i would say like model and invite that's so kind well yeah and (laughs) like Success for JLF is not contingent on what the rest of Jewish philanthropy does. Like I used to work in an organization that is doing very impactful work trying to transform Jewish institutions. That's a different project. We're building an alternative and lovingly inviting our colleagues when they want to talk to us to, you know, put a toe in the water, see how it feels like it's okay. One of the ways that JLF puts this into practice is that our grant making decisions are made by a group of people right now, our steering committee, who are directly connected to the movement work that we're funding, right? There's not this sense of like, if you're far away, then you're objective and you know the best, which is often how philanthropy operates. The distance is lauded and celebrated. We're like, hey, it's going to be complicated. Yeah, totally. It's complicated. But we want people who are deeply embedded and understand what's happening on the ground to be making decisions, right? So we raise money, Jordan and I raise money, and then- stack paper. Yeah. (laughs) And then we facilitate a process by which, you know, a team of grant makers who are entirely Jews of color, who have deep relationships within our movements, decide how those dollars are allocated. And along the way- right? We're building relationships with philanthropists. We're offering a model of how this can look different. And again, really with a lot of respect and love and sometimes a little bit of tochacha, but like really with respect and love saying, hey, like we can release a little bit. I think so much of this is about power and the fear that we have about letting go of the power that comes with deciding where resources go. And like, it's okay to release a little bit. And in fact, it can be awesome. Right. I love that. As part of the column B, I think as well worth mentioning the 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 teaching you're doing now as well, Jill. Like it's a pre- I think it's a pretty cool program. Like in terms of Joe can talk more about it. I was just at the first session and it was like really cool to see a lot of these people from larger philanthropic organizations like engaging around uh, their relationship to power, etc. But Joe's uh, been working on like a philanthropy for racial justice series that has some of these larger donors uh, involved in terms of trying to change the landscape uh, petition or. Uh, respectfully invite uh, and lovingly to dip their toes in the water, (laughs) however you want to uh, phrase it. (laughs) Yeah, I've been working with colleagues at a family foundation based in Boston, the Krupp Family Foundation and Resource Mobilizer, a fundraiser from Never Again Action, which is one of our grantees. Although we started this work before they were a grantee to launch what right now is the pilot. We hope it will grow a series that's really political education and facilitation with family foundations. So we've invited Jewish family foundations into a series of sessions, learning from movement leaders about what do movements need from philanthropy? What could this partnership look like? What does it ask of us? Those of us who are on the philanthropy side, what's asked of us? How do we really meaningfully step into this work? Understand when our, you know, right. As one of my dear friends and teachers said, yesterday, you know, what's our right role? And how do we be in right relationship in any given moment? And that looks different. And just figuring out how to do it, because like, it's not obvious and easy how to have real, meaningful, honest, trusting relationships across those lines of power. And there's always power there. 
I think this is a great point to bring in our Talmud onto the table. We could talk only about Jewish philanthropy for a full episode, <laughs> but in our heart and soul, we are theoretically a Talmud podcast. Yeah. Okay, thanks for reminding <laughs> Let's me. Let's get Halva. to the sugya. So we are diving into a little something something from Brachot 28a, and it's going to take a little context before we get to the actual Hebrew of it all. Basically, what has been happening on this duff is there was a huge conflict around leadership in the rabbinic community, and it ended with removing Rabban Gamliel from leadership of the Sanhedrin and opening the doors to many more students. And the whole time this conflict has been going on, Gamliel has been treating Rabbi Yehoshua uh, essentially like shit. The Talmud says afflicting and embarrassing, literally. And so uh, these two are sort of, I guess you could say frenemies. The, they're on the enemy to frenemy spectrum. Um, <laughs> and they have been having a halachic argument because there is this person who was an Ammonite and they converted to Judaism and they want to know if they can marry a Jewish woman. But in the Torah, it says an Ammonite shall not enter into the congregation of Israel. So they're having this halachic debate and... Yehoshua's point of view is that the Ammonite is fine to enter because basically what were the biblical Ammonites have now all been mixed up and the category of Ammonite essentially is a social construct that's no longer valid. And so this guy should be fine to come in. And Gamliel says basically the category is still salient and he should be not allowed to marry a Jewish woman. So Yehoshua wins this conflict. Everyone agrees with Yehoshua. The Ammonite comes in. He gets married. Everyone loves Yehoshua. And it's a real vindication after all this time, after he's been being afflicted and embarrassed. And at the end of this conflict, we read, So he says, since Rabbi Yehoshua basically won this argument, I'm going to go and appease him. I don't really know what his motives are exactly. It might just be he's realizing that Rabbi Yehoshua has more political capital now or what, but he decides to go and appease Rabbi Yehoshua, who he's been inflicting and embarrassing. He goes and ki matalabete chazinu debate mascharan. He goes and he sees that the walls of Rabbi Yehoshua's house are black. He says, I can see from the walls of your house that you must be a blacksmith, or some people say a charcoal burner. Rabbi Yehoshua says, he says the big, big one-liner of this whole episode, which is, Woe unto this generation that you are its portion, for you are unaware of the suffering of Torah scholars, how they make their living, and how they feed themselves. So uh, that's our basic sugya. Before I say any of the million thoughts I've been storing up as I prepared it, I'd love to just open the floor for initial initial thoughts anyone has. First of all, I want to say your Hebrew is lovely. Very, oh. very great. Thank you. Thank you. A certain person at 
who's very prominent at my alma mater, uh, sometimes speaks at Hillel. And like, I'm like, I don't know what good Hebrew always sounds like, but I know this is bad Hebrew. <laughs> and so <laughs> really uh, delightful. But yeah, you know, I remember the first time when you said, you know, we were sitting at a coffee shop and you're like, oh, you know, oh, for this like redistribution of power, this this one, uh, this one Parsha comes to my head immediately. And I remember immediately thinking, like, I had literally just had a conversation, like, the day before when I was visiting my grandpa in Florida with my dad, when he was just like, oh, it's just, like, so great that Bill Gates can do all these things with philanthropy, you know, because he has so much money, he's able to, like, get around all these roadblocks that that sit up in, in front of, you know, actually getting something done, uh, whether it's for government or, or whomever else. And like, you know, my dad's like a left of center guy, but not someone who, certainly not someone like who I'd be, who would be like, I'm a progressive or radical. I was like, dad, you know, I was just in Detroit, you know, hanging out with my friends and they're like, our schools are like $500 million behind on repairs. Here in Providence, my friend Jordan, uh, he's runs, he's like with the board of uh, whatever, whoever runs elections. And he talks about how the whole day you get people calling and saying, hey, the, the AC doesn't work in these Providence schools. Hey, the heating doesn't work in these schools. And he's like, yeah, that's what these kids are actually going to school in every single day. And it's a sort of thing where it's like, I bet if Bill Gates actually went to these cities and talked to people who are like involved in, well, maybe not necessarily if Bill Gates himself, because he might not necessarily actually be looking to make that much of an impact besides just like imposing his own business principles and everything. But it's like, oh, maybe if he talks to an urban planner, they would be like, maybe don't like give a bunch of money to find out what the best way to fire teachers on is, whether it's uh, student surveys or test scores. And like maybe make sure our kids can go to school and like not worry about whether they're freezing their balls off or, or burning up, right? Like when it's like hot in the summer. And it just it just immediately makes me think of why it's so important in terms of philanthropy to be to be thinking about how to actually fundamentally redistribute power. It's not something I actually really thought about a lot before I worked at JLF. Candidly, philanthropy was not say your boy is, is not stacking paper to the point where he's really like <laughs> worrying about his philanthropic practices like they're really going to make this like massive uh, difference. But it really feels when you start to think about it and you learn about participatory philanthropy, etc., uh, so ridiculous that you have this dude who's on Ellen DeGeneres not being able to answer how much anything at a grocery store costs, trying to make decisions for what are the best for like working class people. It's insane. Right. It, it That kind of touches on a pun I want to draw out from the text. We read in the translation of the one-liner, woe to this generation that you are its portion. The word here, parnaso, which means portion, is the same word that later he uses in this line to say how they support themselves, by may him mit parnasim. He's basically saying like, woe to the generation, you are supposed to support them, but you don't even know how they support themselves. You're supposed to be their parnasa but you don't even know what their Parnassa is because you live in another world. You're completely out of touch behind closed doors. Literally true for Bill Gates. (laughs) (laughs) And also structurally true for a lot of philanthropy. I've been referencing this over and over since I listened, since I heard her say it, on another Jewish podcast. There's an episode (laughs) of Judaism Unbound where they interview Danielle Derschlag, who's the great-great-granddaughter, I think, of... Nathan Cummings, the founder of the Nathan Cummings Foundation. And at one point, she's describing philanthropy. She says something, and I'm paraphrasing here, I probably won't get it exactly right. But she says, basically, the mechanics of philanthropy look a lot like any other business or organization. They're 
you know, people, they gather and they make decisions. And often they gather in fancy boardrooms and they sit around them and they talk about strategy and impact and measurement. And the difference between that and most organizations or businesses is that nobody in that room will tell them they're wrong. Right. Yeah. And it's just this like fundamental power imbalance in much of philanthropy where it's really hard to tell somebody they're wrong when they hold the the pen, right? That signs the check that Mm -hmm. ultimately then becomes the paycheck that you use to literally buy food and clothe your family. Right. But when you're so distant, right? And I think this is the connection for me that I see is when you're so distant from the everyday realities of the people that you're ostensibly in relationship with, in community with, and fundamentally in service to, right? Like the rabbis, their purpose is to be study, engage in the robust practice of study for the greater good of the the collective on some level, Mm -hmm. right? Like we're not writing this down so nobody will read it. And so it serves no purpose, right? This is being documented. I mean, eventually written down, right? But at the time recorded and taught and taught over and over again, because there's some idea that it has a purpose for the collective well-being. But if you're so disconnected from the lived reality of people in that collective that you're theoretically serving, how can you actually know what their needs are? Mm-hmm. It, 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 when you say that, it is literally so crazy. The, the, the way you put that, you're, it's like Bill Gates literally doesn't have one person who is like, uh, like maybe let's just fix the schools. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, Flint like, still doesn't have clean water. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, no, no water for Flint. No, uh, can't like anti-poverty measures places Bill. Right. It's crazy when you put it that way about how far removed he is and how much power he is, but there's not a person who can stand up to him in that way. It's bonkers. Right, right. And this is that sort of a, a background of this whole thing is that Rabbi Yehoshua up until this point has been being afflicted and embarrassed by Rabban Gamliel. And this sort of moment in the Talmud is is a beautiful reversal where when Rabban Gamliel confront, confronts Yehoshua, I mean, he doesn't confront, he goes there to to sort of make make nice. But when he confronts him on his own turf, that's when Yehoshua is able to sort of overturn the relationship and be the one who is revealing the truth to Rabban Gamliel. It's also really striking to me that Rabbi Yehoshua is, by virtue of class difference, right, he has some aspect of his lived experience that marks him as different in some way from the teachers and decision makers, mm-hmm. some of them at least in the Beit right. Midrash, enough of them that it's shocking to Rabban Gamliel. And this all hinges around a conflict relating to demarcation of insider and outsider status mm-hmm. and sort of what it takes to be considered one of us and good enough right. to be taken seriously. So seriously that like I could marry my daughter to him. Mm-hmm. The person who brings the Torah that's needed in order for the community to arrive at this landing place of more openness is somebody who has this lived experience of some level of structural exclusion, Mm -hmm. right? That doesn't feel like ancillary, right? His Torah is transformed by virtue of who he is in the world and his class experience and his relationship with wealth and work and money and labor, et cetera. Mm -hmm. This is bringing up all sorts of thoughts like secular political stuff that's gone down the past eight years or so. I just remember there was some story that someone told me about a rabbi 
getting upset with a Jew singing and praising God in, in the way that they weren't supposed to, and him correcting this person that he met on the street and saying, like, no, you're, like, praying to God wrong. You're, like, doing it all wrong. You got to, like, say the Shema. You got to do this. You got to do that. And then that rabbi was visited by an angel and said, God hears all prayers. And he got served a little bit by the <laughs> by <some> <laughs> I don't know. Since 2016, it's hard not to see that everywhere, that kind of problem everywhere. And you guys are kind of in this interesting situation where you have to interact directly with very powerful people and organizations and try to have them fund things that might be more helpful than what they were otherwise going to fund. Right. I was thinking a second ago, Joe, when you were talking about your philanthropic philanthropy for racial justice education that you're doing, that you're in a very Rabbi Yehoshua-esque role in which Rabban Gamliel is like coming to you. You know, it's like your opportunity to to say the one-liners. Mm-hmm. And like how you describe your approach is very different from like the Moses Pharaoh approach. Yeah. This is why I'm not a fundraiser or a PR person, because I would definitely pull a Moses <laughs> and be threatening. So it's amazing that you can like hold it together in those settings, like knowing what you know about these problems and structural issues, how to like actually be in those rooms with those people, it must be very surreal. Yes and no. I mean, I do sometimes have moments of just being sort of bowled over by the scale of wealth. Um, and like rich people are people. Controversial take. <laughs> I, I was, was going to be like lizard people. <laughs> like, I, you know, like, you know, one of the things that I think in my own story has prepared me for this work is that I grew up adjacent to one of the wealthiest towns in the country, but I grew up, I mean, I'm from California. So like what counts as middle class in California is upper middle class, most of the rest of the country. But in the context I was in, I understood myself as middle class and my best friends had like dramatically more wealth than I did. And I think one of the things that taught me was an ability to sort of move between yeah, sure. Sort of social contexts. And in the preparation for this series, um, I had a conversation with the same friend who sort of spoke to thinking about what it means to be in right relationship in different contexts as a donor. And I tapped her to help me um, think through sort of how we were going to position one piece of this training. And ultimately, she, you know, she just reflected back. She's like, Joe, the question you're getting at is just like, why are we here? This is a fundamental organizing question. Like, why why show up? We've all got something in our stories, something in our lives that has compelled us to put ourselves in a position where we're going to be agitated, we're going to be uncomfortable. We don't have to be here. So like, everybody's got that story, right? And for some people, it's the story of the moment where another colleague relayed to me a story of a very wealthy person in a congregation that he was organizing who shared that she got really sick and her family was out of town and she realized the only person she had to call on to like go pick up her prescription was her maid. And mm. one of the things that dramatic disparities in wealth can do is really fracture our ability to be in real relationship with people. And that's got a cost for everybody, right? That's a good point. I do think something that sometimes leftists can glaze over is this idea that rich people are humans. Suffering happens and like human issues occur at all levels of society. If it was just about material and money, then like we wouldn't see rich people 
you know, have their kids, you know, addicted to like whatever and have their particular issues. So it makes sense that obviously, you know, they're humans, we're humans, we have issues, they have issues and there must be some way to relate to them and have some sort of coalition. <laughs> right. And I mean, I think on the other hand, it's also important. I think a phenomenon that happens sometimes in the world is that someone is sort of on the lefty side when they're young and then they become uh, deeply successful and wealthy and they sort of migrate over to the other side of the political spectrum. And I think another sort of lesson of, of remembering that rich people are people is that like we are all capable of all kinds of behavior depending on what forces are present in our lives and experiencing them as non-people will not like help us make change any more effectively. I had one serious thing and I was going to make the wise crack that I'm not sure. So sure that Michael Steinhardt isn't the lizard. because <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's my, He's been my usual punching bag lately since the whole artifacts thing came out. But it's interesting for me just thinking about it. Cause I, in, in a way I almost have a different experience to Joanna where like, you know, my parents are doctors, right? So like, you know, like the working rich, right? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like uh, you don't have stacks of paper that are just like generational, not to mention like, you know, my mom's family being black, it's like, there's just no chance of generational wealth there, right? Like her mom's house sold for 60,000. And it's like a nice five bedroom in good condition. And so it's a sort of thing where, where for me, I grew up going to like a, a public charter school that was like relatively um, socioeconomically diverse, uh, racial diverse for central Illinois, which means you have black kids and white kids and like maybe like two people from like any other race. And like they kept asking my sister if she was Mexican, but like I literally never heard anyone speak Spanish through most of my childhood. Uh, and then, you know, my parents got divorced in eighth grade. My mom wanted to send me to private school. She moved back to her home city of St. Louis. I lived with my grandma for a year at that house of 60,000, like, you know, in the hood, like what they write Nelly songs about. And every day I went to school at this like fancy prep school driving from Natural Bridge and Kings Highway out to to MICDS, like a you know country day, Marion Institute, St. Louis Country Day School. And it's it's funny for me because I never I, I never have this uh, I never am really able to fully uh, not see the humanity of rich people, right? I look at like my parents, right? And it's, you know, it's frustrating because I, I argue with them over like what rich is and they just keep pointing to people who are richer than them. And I'm like, well, you both make like more money than like 98 to 99% of Americans, <laughs> like each of you. But just like the amount of disconnect between the kids at that school and like, you know, when I, when I went back to Springfield, I ran into Quadis Evans and he was like, oh, did you go to college? <laughs> and it was like, I, I, hadn't, I hadn't been asked that since I had gone to this fancy school, right? Or like if I was with my grandma's friends, you know, they it, were at, we were at her boyfriend's funeral and and people like, oh, and you're going to go to college, right? And you go on this fancy, fancy private school and no one would ever ask you that. It's like, are you going to end up at like TCU or are you going to end up at like, you know, I went to Brown, like some, some other nice school or like Wash U, whatever. But the amount of disconnect between people, I always found incredibly frustrating and disheartening and i think one of the real questions is not so much to me like how do you relate to the rich person but how do you get the person in that school in st louis where like i'm literally the only black person in their school or in in my grade black male in my grade where if people are on scholarship it's definitely like hidden and people don't know how do you get those people to care how do you get them to realize how much they've been given when to them this is just the baseline for what is normal in everyday life. And that's that's something that I just find really 
challenging and, and frustrating, even when I talk to people coming from a relatively similar background to them. Mm. That sounds very difficult. Like you have to have a lot of self-awareness and it sounds like you need good theory of mind and be able to put yourself in other people's perspectives. That sounds like that's one side of of JLF. What about the other side? What are some of the things that you guys are excited to be funding and excited to have funded? Everything. <laughs> have, have, have you seen have you seen our grantees? I <laughs> I mean really everything, right? They're everywhere and they're doing so much awesome stuff. I don't I mean I can speak of a few who I've talked with and I think Joe can talk about a few and like it, it feels just so hard like to choose favorites. Um, but just throw out a, just throw out a few, like, uh, you know, I, I already mentioned that we fund JFredge and just people who are like marching and organizing and like winning campaigns for workers around the country uh, and Jews in Ohlone land who are one of the ones I love to bring up just because it's such a creative idea, trying to get people to participate in land reparations in California, like, uh, black Jewish liberation collective using Jewish ritual. I think it's worth flagging that they're using Jewish ritual and art in service of, Indigenous reparations as a tzedakah practice, just like chef. Beautiful, gets. we love it. Yeah, yeah. Black Jewish Liberation Collective, which I guess I should also highlight that they do that as well in terms of having like angry Black Shabbats and like Kwanzaa celebrations, bring Jewish activists together who've been on the front lines in different uh, organizing campaigns around the country to really, um, you know, both like have healing space and planning space and do it Jewishly. Uh, and Lunar, which is the Jewish Asian film project, which has built like this awesome community of, and like YouTube series that everyone should go check out of Asian, basically like telling all kinds of Asian Jewish stories, like young, old, reform, Orthodox, anyone. And so it's, 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 it's really cool to see all this awesome, powerful work happening um, Jewishly. What about you, Joe? Yeah, those are, I mean, Jordan's really right. It's, it's always hard to sort of pick which grantees we're going to highlight because I always feel like it's almost like choosing a favorite kid. Like, they're, they're all great. A couple that Jordan didn't mention that I, I'm excited about the impact they're having in our movement. Join for Justice is one of our grantees. National Community Organizing Organization. Um, I was trained by them. But particularly, we're funding, we're one of the funders of their Jews of Color Organizing Fellowship. And I feel so excited about what will be possible for our movement with more support for Jews of color who are organizers inside and outside of Jewish organizations. Like anti-Semitism is so systematically leveraged to divide Jews from people of color in our movement-based work. And it is so often Jews of color, organizers of color who are looked to, to sort of be the linchpin to try to hold us together, right? In one moment after another of like a shitstorm of anti-Semitism and racism and white supremacy, right? Turning into a pile of steaming poo. Um, <laughs> there are so many examples. And it's imperative for the future of our movement, I think, for us to be investing in the leadership of the JOC organizers who are already being tapped in those moments to try to help us figure out how to do it and are often doing so incredibly isolated. And I think this fellowship is one answer to help solve some of those problems. Also really excited about Colt Sedek in Philadelphia, which is launching a spiritual leadership development series really focused on Jews who've been structurally marginalized and left out of accessing the opportunities to develop spiritual leadership skills, like leaning, you know, it's Jews of color and trans and queer Jews and cis women and Sephardi and Mizrahi Jews. And they're teaching Sephardi and Mizrahi trope and 
prayer. And so they're, you know, investing in this lay spiritual leadership that I have no doubt is going to filter out certainly throughout Philadelphia where they're based, but also I think much, much more broadly across our movement. So I get really excited about those sort of catalyzing projects that I'm like, I can see five years down that like, this is going to be awesome. So like, yes, let's fund it now. I can't wait to see what the future brings, which I think Mm. ties back to Jordan's point at the beginning about like imagining different kinds of futures for ourselves. It's worth noting that like, what's so exciting is that like all of our grantees are doing these things. And so obviously it's so hard to, but what's so exciting about coming to work every day is the fact that there really are all of these things. And exactly like what Joanna's saying about imagination, I think that like one of the things that's so cool about the vision, I think is... Like there's a way to imagine a Jewish world that looks like this. You see all this energy, all these projects popping up. We're getting like new numbers of applications from different organizations uh, every year. We're getting on more people's radar. They're, they're hearing more about us. And really, as you have your finger on the pulse of this Jewish left-wing movement, you can really see how there's so much potential for this to be a real movement of the Jewish people. But that can't happen without Jewish Liberation Fund. It can't happen if we aren't able to actually redistribute control of what Jewish life looks like to those people, the activists, the organizers, uh, the artists who are doing a lot of this awesome work. And that's what we're trying to do and what we're so excited about coming to work for every day. Beautiful. That feels like a, an elegant point to ask as we wrap up the episode, how can people learn more about JLF and how can they support the wonderful work you all are doing? Yeah, you can find us on the internet, on most of the social media channels. We are on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Our Twitter is JL underscore fund. The other two are both just Jewish Liberation Fund. And our website is jewishliberation.fund. Very creative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Keep it keep it fun. <laughs> Duh. Duh. <laughs> and uh, you can also make a donation to support JLF on our website. And I just want to put in a plug for um, small recurring donations are hugely transformative to us. Part of what we are trying to do is, yes, raise money. But also, we're trying to organize donors on the Jewish left. We're trying to build power. This is an organizing project. It's not just a fundraising project. And so the number of people, exactly, the number of grassroots donors we have really matters because then in those conversations with the other foundations, when I like walk into that very fancy boardroom and I've put on my Mm -hmm. heels and blazer, I can say things like we represent X number of progressive Jewish donors from across the country. And the bigger that number is, the more power I have behind me right? Or any of us have behind us in that in those moments. So we are incredibly grateful for and really dependent, like JLF's success is dependent on all of us pitching it in some way. Well, if you're a scruffy artsy Jew, go to JLF, apply for <laughs> apply for something. If you're a boardroom Jew, go schedule a meeting. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone can do small donations too, whether you're scruffy or boardroom <laughs> uh, style Jew. So that's great. The two genders, scruffy and boardroom. Uh, <laughs> wow. I would support that. I would support that delineation. And some of us switch. Right. I was gonna right. say which one I don't even know which one I am. Yeah. I feel I feel very scruffy boardroom gender fluid. Wow. <laughs> Love that for us. Thank you both so much for coming on the show today. It has been a pleasure and an honor to meet you and to talk with you and hear about your work. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Yeah. It's been delightful. Mm. Yeah. What a joy. Yeah, had fun times. Hell yeah. And to all of our listeners, Shavuotov. 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 Shavuotov.